and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast and before we get going, just a quick reminder about a special offer we've got at the moment. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 as well as a £20 Amazon voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. So first up on the podcast, can you train your brain to stay young beyond its natural age? Recent research suggests so and we take a look at the science and what this means for society at large. Plus, we also discover the impact of grouse shooting on our countryside. And finally, there's a somewhat frank discussion about what it's like to be an alcoholic. So first up, can playing brain training apps slow or even reverse the brain's ageing? In her cover piece this week, Camilla Cavendish suggests that we are being far too fatalistic about ageing. And in fact, new research shows that it may be possible for our brains to keep developing well into our old age. To discuss, we've got Linda Blair, a clinical psychologist and contributor to the Daily Telegraph, and Damien Green MP, the former Work and Pension Secretary, and chairman of the newly established all-party parliamentary group on longevity. Linda, Camilla Cavendish's argument in this week's issue is that, much like how we were wrong to once think that boys were naturally better at science than girls, we're also perhaps wrong to think that older people can't learn as well as younger people. Did you agree with her position when you read it in this week's issue? I did indeed, and uh, she's got a lot of research to back her up from my point of view. Absolutely right. And why do you think there is, I mean, why do you think people just assume that older people can't learn, learn as well as younger people? Well, I think traditionally, because we didn't live so long and we got ill a lot younger, it probably appeared that we were deteriorating because we all accepted that that's what would happen. But uh, all we need is a new way to think because the potential's there. Damon, you've been involved in setting up this parliamentary group which is looking to introduce a national strategy to focus on the benefits of longevity rather than the problems of ageing. Can you tell us a bit about that and how it sort of perhaps interacts with what Camilla's writing about? I, I think Camilla is, is absolutely on, on the button with what she's writing about and, and it's a subset of a wider point that we need completely to change society's attitude to people over the age of 60, where by and large, we all think of them as a problem, not individually, but the fact that they, they require pensions, which are expensive, they require more health care, they, you know, some of them will require social care, all of which are seen as big problems. Actually, because of scientific advance, better diet, all sorts of other circumstances, we should just celebrate the fact that people are living longer the the task is now to make sure they can be healthier for longer it's to use slightly terrible jargon health span rather than lifespan that we should care about but it, and it's not only good for all the individuals who if if we can get it right will look forward to decades more healthy living but also it's a huge economic opportunity i mean not just for for healthcare companies and pharmaceutical companies but for everyone there will be a whole new market of active hopefully quite wise and experienced people. And so society and the economy should benefit as well. And what do you think are the policy implications for the sort of research that Camilla is talking about? Well, the policy implications are, are, are huge, both in terms of obvious things like pensions policy. I mean, one of the reasons why the pension age has already had to go up is that we're all living longer. And you know, just doing basic maths, if, if we're uh, having the same or slightly increased pensions for more people for much longer, then you know it's difficult to afford, and individuals won't be able to generate enough 
uh, money in their working life to pay not just for their first 20 years or so when they're in education, but what might be, hopefully, another another 40 years after the traditional retirement age. So it's, it's got that kind of policy implication. But also, and I think this is the other key fact that we need to get to grips with, if we are going to achieve this nirvana of a, a healthy and longer, if you like, extended middle age rather than old age, then it's decisions taken by... 15-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds that matter, both in terms of looking after their own health and not becoming obese and so on, but also in terms of being able to lead their lives in the knowledge that their working life is going to be much longer. So it has implications for things like sabbatical years and so on that, that will have to become much more normal. Linda, one of the things that Camilla talks about in her piece quite a lot is is the use of technology to help improve the brain. But I suppose the flip side to that is that you know, are we sort of relying on technology too much and is actually slightly damaging to the brain? Where do you stand on that? Is technology going to help us or going to hinder us? As long as we are in control of technology rather than the other way around, it's a, a great asset. Nonetheless, I would say that really only one aspect of the cognitive retraining, the, the, the waking up of the brain rather than doing the aerobic exercise and socializing more and having an optimistic outlook, that stuff. But for the cognitive retraining, only one aspect it really relies on computers, and even that one doesn't have to, and that is processing speed. That is how quickly we can do hand-eye coordination, how quickly we can figure out what's going on and respond to it. Computer games are great for that, but I mean, you can do it in other ways as well. Learn to play the piano fast. I mean, there are, there are quite a number of ways. But learning to wake your memory back up uh, which is one of the other of the th- triad of things that can help you cognitively is something that you don't need computers for whatsoever, probably better without. And conceptual reasoning, that is thinking outside the box, problem solving in new ways, you don't need computers for that. So computers are there. They can help us in one particular aspect of cognitive retraining, but we must always stay in control of them. And that isn't just old people. That's particularly our young people. Damien, has the parliamentary group been looking into technology and how it can benefit? Oh, well, the parliamentary group's only existed for four days, so um, <laughs> we're, we're not a long way Early down. Days. But But, but absolutely, we, we, we are attempting to plug into uh, a, a wide network, and a lot of the people who are getting involved are entrepreneurs and and innovators both in in fields like ai artificial intelligence where you know, clearly there are at the at the boundaries of current technology things that can make a huge difference to people's old age but also in in you know, many of the areas linda's been talking about where it is a, a sort of lifelong process of, of of how do we all live our lives differently how do, how do we just get out of the mindset of 20 years of education, 40 years of work, and then a few years of retirement at the, at the end of it. Once, once you break that mindset, and, and I was sort of inspired to look at this area by the, the book The 100-Year Life, which has a lot of implications in it for how we individually lead our lives, um, but also obviously has huge implications for public policy and governments as well about, about what, you know, what they can best do to allow people to have longer healthier lifespans and and what you need to do to encourage people not just to be healthy but maybe to have the capacity to retrain themselves several times in their life you know the idea that you you go into a career at 20 and you'll be doing that till you're 70 is just 
it's so 20th century. Uh, we, need to, we need to get out of that. <laughs> Linda, are there people who disagree with Camilla? I mean, is there, is there a sort of argument that perhaps we are making kind of premature conclusion and, and older brains are perhaps, do you find it harder to, to continue to learn? No. Well, I think perhaps we do have to pull up a little bit more motivation because our energy levels generally are not quite so high. But the research so far is mainly on mice and so we can't jump to humans but even autopsies on humans are suggesting that we can grow new neurons just at the same rate as when when we were younger so I I think we can't conclude that that's happening but I think it's promising on the other hand you've got to realize that as you get older sometimes you have to summon a little bit more energy to get get going well once you're going if you're doing what you love then that's just as easy as ever it was and i really want to agree with what damien was saying about picking up a couple of different careers which already a lot of the millennials are thinking about doing that is new learning that's stuff that in itself will keep you cognitively awake and alert for longer. Thank you, Linda and Damien. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls, and you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider, and why not leave us a review if you like it? And next, has grouse shooting decimated the English countryside? That's what Ben MacDonald argues in this week's magazine. He says that although Britain was once the world's model for sustainable hunting and wildlife management, the policy of turning over vast swathes of our countryside to grouse moors has been an ecological disaster. He joins me today together with Tim Bonner, Chief Executive of the Countryside Alliance. Tim, for listeners who perhaps aren't quite so aware of it, can you can you start by explaining what a modern grouse shoot looks like? Uh, well, a, a grouse shoot you wouldn't recognise as that, other than the, the the ten or twenty days a year when someone's actually shooting there. Um, other than um, you have a, a managed heather moorland, um, very common across the north of England and Scotland, um, you might see a line of what are called butts, which are the the, the um, uh, sort of pits in the ground or raised raised uh, hidden areas where people shoot from, and you'll see on a on a grouse moor a range of Heather of various ages. Um, usually, there's a, a, a cycle of burning, or burning is used as a management tool, so that you have long, long heather, which is good for for birds to breed in and hide in. You have shorter heather, grouse in particular eat, eat that heather. So, you, your range of habitat, a created man-made habitat, uh, and you know, this is fundamental to the whole discussion of the issue that we are talking about something that's not natural, that's not wild. There isn't anything that's particularly natural in the whole of the UK, if we're honest about it. It's all a created landscape, and the grouse moor is as created as an arable field in East Anglia but it has some very special purposes and it has some very special benefits to a whole range of wildlife. Ben in your piece this week you talk about burning and what exactly is the issue you have with the way that grouse moors are managed? Yeah I mean I I would I would take what I regard as a um, middle of the road position and that for me the isolation of large tracts of land um, to be managed in a very wild fashion for the purposes of hunting can actually be as uh, the new forest demonstrates, um, exceptionally useful because, as I'm sure Tim and myself would agree, the land isn't being built upon. It is therefore by default uh, protected. 
Um, and so you have some really exciting opportunities, uh, potentially, uh, for wildlife, uh, for ecotourism, uh, for a range of hunting and shooting opportunities, all of which in Scandinavia, for example, coexist side by side uh, perfectly nicely. And actually, the original hunting models in this country, uh, very low intensity, extensive affairs, um, were probably really excellent um, for a whole range of UK species. As, as I make the point in the article and in my book, uh, Rebirding, what has happened, in my view, is a rather strange industrial twist in really very recent times, both in terms of British history and um, uh, British ecology, whereby burning has become mistaken for conservation. We have ended up with a heather monoculture covering really large areas, up to 8% of our country. Now, Tim is correct that these areas are not entirely devoid of life. Um, People often point uh, to the curlew, but I think it's worth remembering um, that curlews were obviously um, drifting around this wonderful island quite a long time before 1830 or so and the burning of the moors. So do these animals actually need um, heather to be burnt in very large areas of our country, or are there more exciting models available for landowners working within the pro-capitalist structure we have in this country of owning land, all well and good, that would give us far better wildlife, more jobs, and would even give hunters better opportunities? I believe the answer to that is yes, and I believe that moderate, sensible rewilding um, of the type that Tim has seen and I believe liked at the Nepa state could now be wheeled out on a much larger level in our uplands. We are not talking about regression to canopy forest and wolves eating people's children. We are talking about the repatriation of peaceful herbivores, uh, horses, cattle, and possibly eventually even the elk. I've never met a hunter or wildlife lover who wouldn't love to see elk back in the northern English uplands. So we are talking about stewardship. We're not talking about chaos. Um, We are talking about a much wilder, more extensive model for hunting estates to follow. And before this sort of sounds like a complete fantasy, it is already happening in Scotland on the huge estates owned by the Danish billionaire Anders Poulsen, Um, It's working very well. Um, That is what I'm advocating for, uh, not any kind of um, ban or not any kind of land change. It is a positive step um, towards sharing the landscape better with hunting and shooting. Tim, what do you make of Ben's argument that we need to rewild grouse moors? Well, Ben's argument is is slightly confused in relation to different types of land use. I mean, I, I know the Bolson ground very well in the far north of Scotland. It's wonderful what's going on up there. It's still a very heavily managed area of land, although there's huge amounts of it. There's different management. There's less management in some ways than, than, than there was uh, in the past. But, for instance, they're shooting a lot more deer in order to, to create a, set, a, a different scenario. When we're, we're talking here about a relatively small number of driven grouse moors, there are probably 180, 170, 180 in the country. Um, In part, that uniqueness is part of the issue. They become a political issue because they are almost the definition of exclusive. Uh, If you want to shoot a pheasant, you can create a pheasant shoot almost anywhere. You cannot create a grouse moor. They can only only happen in these these unique habitats, this heather moorland, which which can be created in certain places. And because of that, and because of the popularity of shooting as a whole, it's become the toy not just of the rich, but of the super rich. If you walk down St James's now, just next to the 
just between Berry Brothers and, and, the, and the shop where you buy your super yacht, you'll find CKD who will sell you a grouse more. It is, it is about international billionaires. Nobody's talking here about, for instance, the Kielder Forest, which is 50,000 acres, 50,000 hectares covered in, in conifer mono, monoculture, which is a, an ecological disaster. You don't, you know, you, you, I haven't seen a, a, an article in The Spectator recently talking about the devastation that that's caused. Why not? Because no one's got any gripes with foresters, whereas obviously the people who shoot grouse are probably second only to those who sit on horses in red coats in terms of you know, the, the iconic targets of the, of the left in, in the countryside. So I, I think we have to be clear that there are a whole range of different landscapes we're talking about here. And those unique uh, driven grouse moors in the north and the rest, they, they first of all protected that land from other development. You know, they, they would be, you know, there would be conifer forests all over the uplands of England if it wasn't for grouse shooting. There is a huge amount of investment in those areas. Last year was the worst grouse shooting season for about 20 years. There are people who are putting millions, literally millions of pounds into their estates who hardly shot a grouse last year. But they will continue to put that money in there. And we're talking about areas, for instance, the North Pennines, where there is nothing else. If there wasn't for grouse shooting, there would be five very poor um, sheep farmers and for all the hype about elk and trees and the rest of it you know go to other go to the cheviots where there isn't any grouse shooting go to other areas of the uplands where go to go to mid wales i can tell you if you want to see you know if you want to see rural poverty and see low incomes uh, low income communities these are really poor areas of the world whereas grouse shooting maintains communities and it has it has the ability for, for whatever reason, because people love doing it, to, 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 to encourage people to bring huge amounts of money into those communities. So, you know, it, it is not a, a natural or a wild landscape. Uh, of course it isn't. You know, it's, it's a managed one. But I no more can, can argue that, that, that I should tell someone who owns a grouse moor that they can't do that and they should do something else, other than I'm going to go to the fens and tell an arable farmer who's growing the food we eat that he can't do that because actually what should be there is, a, is an extraordinary wetland supporting vast numbers of water birds, which it was what it was before it was drained. You know, this is a fundamental discussion about the right of the landowner to manage their land, to do it in a, in, in a way which, uh, which, which is positive in terms of uh, public goods and biodiversity and all the rest of it, but to, to, to take a decision that they're managing that land for that purpose. Um, and if we can't do that, we're, Christ, we're, we're living in a strange world. Ben, um, do you agree that this is much a sort of class issue as, as an ecological one? Uh, the point raised by Tim is a very interesting one that these estates uh, support jobs. Um, we need to remember we are talking about an area, grouse moors in their entirety in the United Kingdom, cover an area close to 8% of our country, and yet they produce 0.005% of our GDP and 0.008% of our jobs. They are not producing no jobs, but under a rewilded model, Estate owners would not only have more money, more income, they would have more game, they would therefore have more gamekeepers, more jobs, more ecological diversity and greater prestige. It is already being seen in this country, it has been seen at a small scale at Nep in Sussex and at a larger scale in places like Glenfeshi in Scotland. It can work in the interests of landowners and needs to be seriously considered. And Tim, what do you make of this general argument that we need to be rewilding shooting estates? It's not just hunting and shooting estates, is it? We, apparently we should be rewilding everything. I, I, I think it's a worrying phrase, really, because it, it causes antipathy in the, in the um, uh, traditional rural communities and in the farming sector, because 
people see themselves, the farmers in particular, see themselves as, as the guardians of the landscape. In many cases, it was their forefathers who created that landscape and they, they continue to do it. And the countryside for us, for the Alliance and for those people, is a working place. It's not a chocolate box. It's not about you know something pretty to look at. It's where you work and it's about people. So our goal should be not to say, you can't farm here, that your traditions, that your, you know, your history must be wiped out, but you must farm with nature, that we have a way of, you know, we don't have to be quite so tidy, <laughs> that we can leave those corners, that we can, we can go a, a year without cutting a hedge. There's all sorts of things that people can do. And the farming community is very arch up for that. There's no problem there at all. So um, the, the real concern for me with this whole um, sort of mythical thing of rewilding is that it alienates those people who need to be brought into the conservation argument the most. Thank you, Ben and Tim. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. And finally, what lessons are there to learn from 25 years without drinking? In this week's issue, Damien Thompson writes about his quarter century of sobriety and what alcoholism and recovery have taught him. He joins me now, along with his good friend and The Spectator's food critic, Tanya Gold. Damien, you've been sober for 25 years, as you write in this week's issue. Do you ever feel the temptation to drink? First of all, I haven't been sober for 25 years. I've been teetotal for 25 years. What's, what's the difference? Well, the difference is a few other mind-altering substances, most of them legal. But, um, yep, I have not had a drink for 25 years, even though, you know, at least once a month, sometimes more often, I had these incredibly convincing dreams in which I acknowledged to myself that I'd been surreptitiously having a glass of wine here and there and lying to myself and lying to everybody else about it. And it takes ages before I wake up and realise that, actually, no, I haven't had a single glass. It hasn't actually been difficult. That bit of it hasn't been difficult because, as I say in the piece, I it's just doing something I don't want to do. I don't look at a glass of wine and think, ooh, that'd be lovely. I think, you bastard alcohol. You know, look what you did to me. And I don't want another hangover. And what was the ever. moment that made you realise you needed to stop drink- drinking? When when Christina Adoni, I think, rang me up, as I'd, I, I rang her and said, I've done it again, meaning I've been in another day, sort of three-day bender. And... She said, well, either you get in touch with AA or I do today. Anyway, that day I went to an AA meeting. I'm not still involved in it, but but I'm incredibly grateful to them. And to Christina and to Mary Kenny, who also helped me a lot. Tanya, you've been teetotal for 17 years. Um, well, she's been sober. Technically sober. Okay. But I'm a member of AA, unlike Damien, and we have all kinds well, was, of dogma. For years. You said it was boring. It was. After time, it's can be fun. To be boring. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure I should be talking. Depends about on the AA. meeting. Sorry. I can talk about it because it depends on the meeting. Are you, are you allowed to talk about AA? Are they, are they sort of well, I'm. So, you know. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We must always maintain an, anonymity at the level of press, radio, or film. No one's mm. ever adequately explained to me. Well, you've to just me said you're a member of AA, so you've just broken a cardinal rule. 
Okay, well, it's a broad church. Okay, back on the bottle. <laughs> okay. And Tanya, how's, how's your life changed since you gave up alcohol? Oh, well, it was such a long time ago. I was, I was 27 uh, when, when I stopped drinking, and I'm, I'm 45 now. And it really seemed like another, another person. Um, I mean, what happened to me, some alcoholics have a sort of long, slow decline. Uh, and I just, I just fell off a cliff. I became a drinking alcoholic in my first term at university. And I very, very quickly went insane. And by the time I was 27, uh, I realised that if I didn't stop drinking very soon, I was, I was going to die and and quickly. One of the one of the one of the problems with with recovery from alcoholism is, is if if, if you say to somebody uh, with cancer, take the treatment, they'll say yes, I'll take the treatment. But you meet so many alcoholics who don't even need don't even admit that they have a problem. But even I could no longer remain in denial and. I decided to stop drinking when I went home uh, one night uh, after a bender in Soho and I'd drunk a lot of alcohol and I'd done a lot of cocaine and I remember coming home and it was about four o'clock in the morning I looked in the mirror and I pointed at myself and I started going I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you and it seemed very clear to me at that time that I'd actually divided into two people it was very helpful for me to think that I was two people and one was good and one was bad and I'd have to kill the bad person before she killed me and how have you found life without alcohol I mean have have you had a similar experience where you haven't really wanted to touch a drop well alcohol's the great liar and all afternoon I've had great euphoric recall talking to Damien about doing this and and I all I've all I've remembered is is the highs but the highs maybe where it begins but it's not where it ends so I, I don't the, the same part of me doesn't and couldn't miss alcohol, but I would say that uh, it is... Uh, I once wrote, I, I, I missed my old life for it had not been boring, uh, but I'm alive and I have a job and a child, and I would say that I've got fat and I have substantially less sex now, uh, but otherwise I'm just alive. Well, I, I don't think about the highs. <clears throat> I think about the lows. I especially think about the hangovers. There's something particularly soul-destroying about a hangover. And I was talking to Max Pemerton, actually, the wonderful, wonderful um, psychiatrist um, who's often room for Spectator. And he said to me, you know, alcohol is one of the worst things to be addicted to. People imagine it's, it's, it's not as bad as various other drugs. Well, there are drugs that are worse. And I name one crystal meth, I think, is, is worse. But I'm not sure that cocaine addiction is worse than alcohol addiction because real alcohol addiction is frightening. And I don't just mean that you get into frightening situations. There's a constant fear of not knowing where you're going to end up once you start drinking. Now, there were evenings I could start drinking and I'd go back after a few glasses and that was fine. And there were many other evenings where I'd take a glass and then from then on the evening was basically lost. I had terrible blackouts and took me all over London. One of the best sayings I heard, it may not have been in AA, but it's, it's certainly so true of alcoholism, is that there's a difference between an ordinary drinker and an alcoholic. The ordinary drinker, the ordinary person might well say, I'm going to go to the pub tonight and get really smashed. And the alcoholic says, I'm going to go to the pub tonight and not get really smashed. This constant anxiety that um, you're going to slip out of control. And then the terrible guilt when you do slip out of control. And I'm afraid my article ends on a slightly gloomy note because something breaks inside you during those years of drinking and it isn't automatically mended or indeed bits of it aren't mended at all and I don't know if you agree Tony but the, the, I, I found having attended hundreds of AA meetings that difficulties coping with resentment seemed to be a sort of leitmotif for the meetings well 
you, you need to believe that, that there's some external force that is that is driving you, driving you to alcohol, I think. I have resentments pop up like daisies in my mind and they are almost all uh, false. Um, yeah, yeah. I was interested that you talked about um, being broken because sometimes, you know, of course I feel the same and, I mean, I cannot really describe to the listener how frightening it is going mad by your own hand, mm. it seems, uh, when you're when you're young. Sorry, I've lost my thread a bit. Well, I'm not surprised you've lost your thread a bit because it's very, very distressing. And you say going mad by your own hand makes absolute sense to me. And as soon as you said it, it sent a little bit of sort of chill into me because you know it's by your own hand. And yet at the same time, you're following compulsions. And this is the really difficult thing. There's a compulsion, there's an addiction, and yet it's you who picks up the glass. So actually working out, you know, who's guilty, whose fault it is, how it happened, why it happened, whatever, is always very, very complicated. And I don't think we'll ever ever arrive at an answer. I, I used to think that something inside of me was so broken it would never be fixed. And I, I often think that still. But as I get older, I, I like to tell myself that that's just something that my alcoholism is telling me. I think another analogy, I don't know if it's true for you, Damien, but my alcoholism, sometimes it feels like it's a voice eating its way out of my own mind. And it's telling me to kill myself, yeah. whether by starting fights or by yeah. overeating or by yeah. shouting at editors. Um, yeah. You know, whatever. It's a, it's, all it's of a which, destructive voice. All of which I, I do. Voice. I'm afraid. But. You know, for God's sake, we're the lucky ones. Alcoholism is a terrible death. It is a terrible death, and you can see people heading towards it. Say in the article, I can, I can walk into a party and I can... I've got nothing... I've got no problem with people getting pissed. None whatsoever. In fact, I'm uncomfortable if I, I go to dinner and people say, would you mind us drinking? I say, for goodness sake, drink as much as you like. I'll, be, I'll feel more relaxed if you're relaxed. But I do have a problem with, with watching people who... Uh, have developed at a young age a very, very unhealthy relationship with alcohol and I could go into, say, the spectator party and I could instantly identify <laughs> only a small number of people, sure. actually. What, what are the signs that you... I mean, some, what's the difference between someone who, who has a drinking problem compared to... It's the compulsion. ...people at a spectator it's party? It's the compulsion. You, you, can, you can tell that, that, that basically having a drink is the most important... Having a drink is more important than any conversation they're having and a very good description of addiction in general, I think is that addiction replaces people by things. And those things can be experiences. So, for example, I mean, the highest suicide rate associated with any addiction is actually gambling, which doesn't involve a substance, but it is an addictive experience. And what always, always, always happens is that re- people are pushed out, relationships are damaged, sometimes beyond repair. The toll on families is is shocking and they're, they're not always very helpful and how important i mean have friends and family been in the decision to give up alcohol not important at all i would say it's a truism that no alcoholic stops drinking for other people uh, i've never met one who has uh, i stopped drinking because uh, i knew it was going to kill me and my mother's tears and my sister's despair it, it, the thing about alcoholism is it gets progressively worse. It's soul, it rots your soul. I know that's a cliche, but there's no better way of putting it. And you may, you know, be a young and shiny child, and by the end of your drinking career, you you hate love, you hate people in love. Other people, for me, they were just ghosts to me. You know, they meant nothing to me. I would use them, but 
I couldn't form human connections with other people. So, but my mother said to me, do you want to go to rehab? Uh, and I said yes. And uh, I met a wonderful, wonderful man, a counsellor in there, and he helped me a lot. And that was it. All, all of this, I, I didn't go to rehab, but, but all of this rings so true. It's a heartbreaking message to deliver to families, but I think we, I think both of us, both Tanya and I, and Tanya, Tanya and I, one of the reasons Tanya and I are great friends is because we've, we've been through this, is that you can't persuade somebody to stop drinking. Can you? Mm. Well, this is why I want it's to... Go. It's just, it's virtually impossible. No, of course you can't. Or, or, or taking heroin or, or whatever. They you have to they be have to ready. To, you have to have yeah. seen your own death, yeah. is my view, in your mind. And I did, I did want to bring you back to something you said earlier about, about responsibility. Because, I mean, yes, of course, we picked up the drink. But when I started drinking alcoholically when I was 19, if I'd known where it would end... I don't think anyone ever chooses to be a drunk. I don't think anyone wakes up when they're a child and said, when I'm older, I want to be a drunk mummy. And it's true, the science is very young because nobody actually wants to invest in alcoholic twin studies. My own sense is that it's genetic, but triggered by trauma or not. I think it can be arrested with good parenting. But you see these people, you see these people. And it's again, it's, it's the only disease where the symptoms actually are that you become a bloody, horrible person. Yeah, well, this is true. Now, we won't have an argument whether it's a disease or not because I've had it a million times including with you and we never get anywhere and I, I don't think it's a disease but I do but I think it's just as bad as you, you you think it is it's an especially wretched way to spend your life and it's an especially wretched way to spend your your 20s and I lost my 20s and it's a cliche but you know <laughs> I'm going to get them back People talk about happy memories, and I think, hmm, you know, if I'd said no to that third glass of wine, I might actually have some happy memories because I never did say no to a third glass of wine. Well, Damien, Tanya, thank you very much for being so, so frank on this podcast. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It's always lovely for us to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've discussed, as well as more from Prue Leith, Damien Thompson and Jonathan Powell. There's also an interview with Brett Easton Ellis by Sam Leith. And if you'd like to listen to the recording of that interview, just search for the Spectator Books podcast on the iTunes store. And a reminder of that offer that we had mentioned at the start, you can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, plus a £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Mm-hmm.